The scripture reading for today that I will be preaching on is in Mark 15. As mentioned, it is, it is a description of the crucifixion of Christ, an event we're familiar with. But worth reading one more time. The words I'll direct your attention to begin in verse 22 of Mark 15. Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide which each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with the transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Reading such a, a painful account, even the, even the psalmist's account in Psalm 22, provokes the, the oft-asked question, why is it that God allows so much suffering in the world, especially if he's all powerful. COVID-19, miscarriages, cancer, persecution, racism, rape, abusive authorities. Why does God allow this to happen to anybody, let alone to his children? I mean, just even consider how much the Israelites have suffered throughout their history. If 
God is their God, why does he allow these things? And this is a question many of us have asked of ourselves. Maybe even this week you have had to ask yourself, why is this taking place? What is God's design in all of this? And frequently, we never know. We're, we're often never told the reasons for why we suffer the things we suffer. And we, we move on not having a satisfactory explanation. And nevertheless, behind all the world's pain, we do know that there is a sovereign and all-powerful God who is directing all of these things according to His purpose. And nowhere is this more evident than in the crucifixion of Jesus. The greatest act of injustice ever in the history of the world. And the point of this text is that every horrible thing that takes place over the six hours of Jesus' crucifixion, all of it is according to is according to divine design. The crucifixion of Jesus was the the culmination of God's plan to save sinners. And Jesus knows it. He knows it. And that's why He willfully endures the pain, the mocking, the scorning, all the humiliation. And He resists coming down from the cross even when ridiculed to his face multiple times. There's a simple outline to this passage. It's divided up over the third hour and the ninth hour of his crucifixion. But there's again one central point, And that is that all of this is according to plan. All this suffering is according to plan. Verses 22 through 28 describe how the king is crucified according to the scriptures. You might recall that as Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, he announced to his followers three times that he was going to Jerusalem and would be killed. He's most explicit about this in Mark 10, verse 33. I'll just read it for you. He said, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Again, we we need to recognize that all the horror, all the mockery is according to plan. And that that begins with this site that is chosen for his death. We're told that he's brought to the place called Golgotha and that it means place of the skull. Uh, The the word Calvary, sometimes described as Calvary, that comes from the Latin term for place of the skull. So we we sang that in in one of the, the songs, Christ on the road to Calvary. I guess it sounds better than Christ on the road to Golgotha. But it's the same place, just different language. But we're not told why it's called the place of the skull. But it really doesn't matter. Because the name of the place is less important than than where it's actually located. The fact that it's outside Jerusalem. 
Jesus needed to be killed outside of Jerusalem because of the role that he was playing. He was the sacrificial lamb of God who had come to take away the sins of the world. Recall that the law demanded that everyone who was executed for capital crimes had to be executed outside of the city of Jerusalem or outside of the camp during the time of the tabernacle because they were accursed of God. And this is why the author of Hebrews points out that Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Also, the fact that he was given wine mixed with myrrh is a testimony that this is all according to his sovereign plan. This act was prophesied in Psalm 69, verse 21. He says, they gave me poison for my food and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. And so this wine that was offered to him, it was like a simple homemade narcotic that was supposed to help those who were condemned to such punishment to help them endure the pain. But Jesus will have none of it because he understands he needs to take without any help the full penalty for the sins of the world upon himself. So the fact that he's crucified outside, the wine that's offered to him, also the divided garments by the soldiers is a fulfillment of the scriptures. You might have picked up on that in Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, as it was read. It explicitly says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots, which is exactly what takes place. But even more important than all of these things that are prophesied is the fact that he was crucified. The manner of death. The law stated in Deuteronomy twenty-one, twenty-two that criminals who were hung on a tree were cursed of God. And Jesus was cursed of God for bearing the penalty of sin. And this is why Paul wrote in fulfillment of this fulfillment in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And, and the cross is just a sort of man-made tree, a, a piece of wood that is transfixed to the ground. It's like a a man-made tree. And the fact that nails were used to to hang him on the cross is also a fulfillment of Scripture. From Isaiah 53, 4-8, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon Him, the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. Psalm 22 says, they pierced my hands and feet as well. So he's crucified outside Jerusalem, offered sour wine, had his his garments divided up by his persecutors. He was hung on a cross. More than this, the inscription that's placed above his head is a fulfillment of Scripture. Inscriptions explained the reason why a person was being executed. And the reason that's given is it says that he was the king of the Jews. This in and of itself, too, points back to the fact that he is the king of the Jews and that the king of the Jews would be the savior of the Jews. 
Recall the Davidic covenant that's made with David in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, that one day his son, his descendant, would establish an eternal kingdom. Well, this is how this comes about. Also, the fact that Jesus was crucified along with criminals was foretold in Isaiah 53, verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he was he poured out his death, his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That is, he prays for them. And in, in verse 28 supports this as well. But in mentioning verse 28, some of you might even not have that verse in your Bibles or it's in brackets. And that's, a, that's a, for a good reason, because in the earliest manuscripts, this verse wasn't there. And so it was most likely a scribal edition as they were copying text. They actually added this verse to later versions. So it wasn't part of the original, but that's OK, because the point that it's making is completely valid. Being killed alongside sinners is exactly what the scriptures prophesied would happen. And so Isaiah 53, 12 points out that the Christ, Israel's savior, Israel's hero would be condemned as a common criminal. And so the fact that, that Jesus was hung on a tree, the fact that he had his garments divided up, that he was crucified outside Jerusalem, given sour wine. The inscription, all of this points out to the fact that Jesus was not a hapless victim. He was not the victim of circumstances. All of this was according to a divine plan. Exactly with what the scriptures foretold. And likewise, so was the mockery that he faced multiple times. We already saw earlier how he had been scorned by the the soldiers, both in uh, the house of Caiaphas, the Jewish soldiers and that were there, but likewise also by the Roman soldiers, even after flogging him, they mock him. And the mockery continues here, beginning in verse 30. And all of this is in precise fulfillment of Psalm 22, 7. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And what's particularly noteworthy, though, is, is what they say in their mockery. Notice this. Both the passers-by and the chief priests both mock him, saying, he's able to save so many other people, but he won't save himself. And they, they, they mock him and, and tempt him by saying, come down from the cross if you're able to. And their mockery from their vantage point, I think, seems logical. If Jesus was, in fact, able to save so many other people, why wouldn't he save himself? If he had all the, this miraculous power that we had seen already demonstrated throughout the Gospel of Mark, why doesn't he use it? It's because if he were to come down from the cross, all he could save would be himself. And everything 
that He purposed to accomplish would all be in vain. And you and I and every other person who has ever lived on the face of this earth would be condemned for eternity in hell and receive the just penalty for our sin. If Jesus would have yielded for one moment to their mockery, all would have been lost. And so upon hearing all their mockery, Jesus needed to decide what was more important, preserving his pride or saving sinners. And remember how Jesus prayed in John 12, 27? He said, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. This is exactly why he came. Jesus was choosing this suffering. Jesus was choosing this mockery. He was choosing to endure all of this because he knew this was the only way that we could be saved. There was no other way. He had to be crucified. You might recall when, when, when Paul wrote the letter to 1 Corinthians, there was so much tension within the church and there was arguing, people boasting in all of their different gifts and different understandings of, of how Christians should live. And, and Paul made this statement very explicitly. He said, but we preach Christ crucified. And you hear that phrase mentioned many times within churches even today. But it's helpful to even recall, what did he mean by that? I mean, because when we hear the words Christ and crucified, they seem to go together. You hear Christ, you automatically think the cross. You hear cross, you automatically think of Jesus. But when Paul mentioned that, that was a shocking statement. To have, recall what the Christ means. The Christ is the Messiah, the hero, the Savior of all Israel, the King of Kings, the one who would save them from all of their troubles. The Christ, crucified, condemned as a criminal, tortured, so Paul is saying, what we tell the world is that their Savior, their hero, the one that will rescue them from all of their problems, did so by being tortured as a common criminal. That's what it means to preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And to tell people they were going to be saved from the pain of this world by the torturing of a condemned man just sounds Absolutely ludicrous. I mean, try it. Somebody comes and tells you their problems. And you say, I got an answer for that. A condemned criminal. Why was this God's plan? Why would he save us through a crucified Christ? The reason is because what's behind all the pain in the world, why there is so much suffering, is because of us. We are the reason 
It's because of our sin. The wages of sin is death, and all the pain that we experience in this world is the fruit of death. The only way to be saved from sin, the only way to be saved from our corruption and our love of self is for Christ to be crucified. Sin is the central problem in the world and faith in Jesus is the only cure. And I think every church in the world would probably say that they preach that Christ is crucified. But do they preach that the problems of the world really stem from sin? Is that what you hear? Do they preach that the only way to be saved is to trust in Christ and in nothing else? To trust in His accomplishment upon the cross. That's what it means to preach Christ crucified. He was crucified because there was no other way to be saved from all of the pain, all of the death, all of the destruction in this world. No man-made legislation can save you from those things. No No president can save you from your slavery to selfishness and sin. No amount of therapy. No amount of book reading. There's no author that can tell you what you need to be set free. And even if you did know, you couldn't do it. That's why the cross was necessary. And Jesus would not have endured a second of it if all of it wasn't necessary. Jesus didn't die just to show you how much God loves you. He died because he needed to take the penalty that you deserved. He died because the problems with us and we can't save ourselves. So he saved us instead. Moreover, consider what it means to follow Christ if this is how he saves. Let's look at how his plan is fulfilled even further in verses 33 to 39. What is emphasized in these verses are the two cries that Jesus makes. And and the Greek word for cry is actually used four times. Twice in verse 34, once in 35, and once in 37. And the first is his cry of anguish to the Father. His second, in great contrast, is a cry of victory as he gives up his spirit unto death. Let's look first at though the, the fact that we're told that the sixth, at the sixth hour, darkness fell over the land until the ninth hour. Darkness just covers everywhere. And there's, there's no meteorological phenomena that can explain this. There's no explanation. So we don't know how it happened. But the Bible tells us that it did happen and it actually hints towards why. In Psalm 105, 28 and Isaiah 50, verses 3 through 4, both those passages highlight that when God poured out his wrath upon Egypt... He demonstrated that he was the one doing this by covering the land with darkness. Moreover, in Amos verses eight, sorry, Amos chapter eight, verses nine and ten, God explains that in the day of the Lord, 
I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And noon is the sixth hour, 12 o'clock. And from 12 o'clock till 3 o'clock, the sixth to the ninth hour, darkness covers the land because Jesus was under the wrath of God. The, the whole point of darkness covering the land is to, to signify this. During these three hours is the critical moment, the pinnacle, when Jesus is bearing the whole weight of sin upon himself. He is forsaken by God. And that's why he cries out in anguish, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is a direct quote of Psalm 21.2.1. And when people hear this cry, they, they think that he's crying out for Elijah. Because he says, Eloi, Eloi. But he's not crying Elijah, but he's crying, my God, Eloi, my God, my God. And I think the fact that Mark mentions this in this account is to remind readers that Elijah had already come. Just as the scriptures foretold when John the Baptist announced that Jesus was king. You might remember back in Mark 9 when the disciples asked about Elijah. Jesus said, and they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things and how it is written of the son of man also that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, referring to John the Baptist, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Again, this, this demonstrates even what happened to John, just like what's going to happen to Christ, what does happen to Christ, all of it is according to plan. And it also signifies, suggests to the reader what they should expect if they likewise want to live as John lived, if they likewise want to follow Christ. And even this cry of anguish, interestingly, provokes mockery. Even as he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They mock him. A person grabs a sponge with sour wine and again he offers it to Jesus. And he says, let us see if Elijah will come down and save him. So even as he's bearing the sins of the whole world, he's continued to be mocked because he won't save himself. Jesus drank the, the, the cup of God's wrath to the dregs, to the bottom. But after this final act of mockery, all the scriptures have been fulfilled. That was the last one. And so Jesus says, it is finished. But it's really important that we know when he says it is finished and breathes his last. That was not just a mere acknowledgement. It was a cry of victory. It's a loud cry. Mark says. The Apostle John writes that 
here Jesus gave up his spirit. That is, it didn't simply depart from him. It wasn't like all of Jesus' energy had finally just been drained. And just natural consequences from bleeding so much or from suffocating through the weight of his body cavity hanging on the cross, crushing his lungs. Jesus, this, was, this was just not a natural effect. Jesus gave up his spirit. When he cried out, he was saying, all of the scriptures have been fulfilled. The wrath of God has been paid for. It is finished. It was a cry of victory. I appreciate what St. Augustine said regarding this. These robbers crucified next to him, did they breathe their last when they wanted to? They were held fast by the chains of the flesh because they were not the creators of the flesh. Fastened by nails, they were tormented for a long time because they were not masters of their infirmity. But the Lord took on flesh in the virgin's womb when he wished it. He came forth to humanity when he wished it. He lived in history as long as he wished it. He departed from the flesh when he wished it. This is a sign of power, not of necessity. It's absolutely right. And the the fact that when he cried out, victory was achieved is proven by what happens next. The veil in the temple is torn in two. This signified that Jesus had fulfilled the scripture. He had completely eradicated the separation between men and God through the rending of his own flesh. Now, men could be reconciled with God because there had been a complete payment for sin. The worst of sinners could enter into the presence of God through Christ, through faith in Him. There's no longer any separation. The writer of Hebrews explains this significance in chapter 10 of his book, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the veil that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So the loud cry, the temple veil. And finally, a third sign of victory is seen in this confession of faith by the centurion. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man is the son of God. Again, what was it that made the centurion think that? Was he reading the book of Romans? Was he reading the book of Matthew? How did the centurion come to that conclusion? He saw the way he breathed his last. That's the point. It was a loud cry of victory. He recognized this man is giving up his spirit. He's not crying in anguish and and utter dismay like all of of his purposes have, have, have finally washed away. No, they've been fulfilled. It is finished. And he died. And it's helpful to realize that centurions were elite soldiers. They were the best of the best. The the, the men who had been in the military for the longest time, and they oversaw a a, a command of a hundred soldiers. They would have been the modern equivalent of like a special forces commando. 
the best of the best, elite. And the fact that this centurion was serving in a region notorious for insurrections just signals how elite this soldier would have been. Think Navy SEALs serving in Syria. And this Gentile man of violence who is overseeing Christ's crucifixion is the first, the first to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. And at the very beginning, Mark introduces his gospel, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And even though multiple followers of Jesus have, have, have they acknowledged that he's the Messiah, multiple times, this is the first time anyone has acknowledged that he's the Son of God. So it wasn't the religious leaders, those who were experts in the law. It wasn't even his disciples. It was a Gentile warrior, man of blood, that first recognized that Jesus was not just the Messiah, but the Son of God himself. And he saw it in the way he breathed his last. The centurion had seen many people die. Whether it was on the field of battle, fellow soldiers, whether it was people being crucified, he had seen death throughout his life and he recognized this man's death is like nothing else I have ever seen. It was so obvious, this cry of victory on his lips, that, that he had to confess, truly, this man was the Son of God. And so I think it also behooves us to ask the same question. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? When, when you, what is the purpose of all of this crucifixion that we've looked at? How does the crucifixion apply to us as Christians? That's the question. How does it apply to us as sinners? Well, I think we have to ask, will you acknowledge like the centurion that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you realize that? Are you willing to acknowledge your need for Him? You need to be saved from your sins. There's nothing that can do it. That's why He died. Do you trust that it was sufficient? And are you willing to repent from your life of sin? Jesus experienced all of this for you. He experienced all of this. He didn't come down on the cross because he knew there was no other way in which you could be saved. Paul writes in Galatians 5, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Sorry, that's Romans 5. And so will you acknowledge your need for him and trust him and repent from your sin? Understand how grave a danger you're in. 
Jesus would not have done this if it wasn't absolutely necessary. And if you, you forsake this opportunity to trust Him, you are turning your back on the only thing separating you from the entire wrath of God for all of the sins that you deserved. Christ doesn't want that. But you need to trust Him. You need to repent and follow Him. Will you? And if you have already made that decision to follow Him, this crucifixion also applies to us in other ways. Paul writes, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world was crucified to me and I to the world. Those who follow Christ trust in His crucifixion and show by their lives that they have been crucified through Him to the world. They no longer live for the lust of the flesh, for all the pride of life, all that this world wars to own. It's been crucified to them. They've died to their life of sin. This is why the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, because Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His blood, therefore let us go to Him outside the gate to bear the reproach He endured. You see how the author of Hebrews applies the crucifixion? Yes, this is the means by which we're saved from your sins, but it doesn't stop there. If you believe that, you will recognize, as Christ recognized, that there's nothing else that is more important in all the world than that people realize this. And you will be willing to endure all the scorn, hatred, really all the pain necessary for them to hear this message. And so let's go to him outside the gate, bearing the reproach he endured so that others might hear and be saved. And in such a decision, despite all the pain, it will be worth it. And this leads to the third application I think we should consider. Trust the sovereign purpose of God even in your suffering. Now, we can easily see in Jesus' crucifixion all of this was according to plan. And, and, and honestly, none of us have that insight to see why we suffer, why other people suffer. We don't get the insight for ourselves. And yet we can be confident that there is always good reasons for it. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us a far greater eternal weight of glory. And I believe if we were able to understand all of the reasons why we were having to face the things that we face. Why God was allowing us to suffer. I think we would readily embrace the suffering if we were able to see the outcomes. If we saw it. And the reason I believe that is because God, who's far wiser, far more loving, far more caring than any of us. has chosen these things for us. He has a purpose, and we don't need to know it to trust Him. And this is why Peter says 
to his disciples. Therefore, let us let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So don't be afraid to entrust all you have to an all loving, all wise, all good God. William Cooper wrote a famous hymn that that goes this way. You might recognize it. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, faith sees a smiling face. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. And that's never any more plain than in the cross of Christ. Please pray with me. Lord, you you made it very clear even back in Isaiah hundreds of years before the crucifixion that no one would have believed that this was the way that men would be saved from all of the problems in life. How they could escape death. No one would have believed it. No one would have believed that the God of the universe would love the world, a wicked, scornful world, so much that He would give His only Son. And yet it was true. And so, Lord, I ask that you would strengthen our faith. And for those here who have no faith, that you would give them faith. Give them eyes to see, to recognize all that Christ has bought for them and, and the wisdom in it, that, that it would be worth losing everything in this world if they could just have Christ. And that Christ would be, you would help them to see that, that, that Christ offers them so much more than anything else that they would repent and believe and never turn back. And Lord, I pray for all of us that you would give us such conviction and confidence in you that we too would follow you going outside the gate, enduring the reproach and trusting you that no matter what you have designed for us in the days and years to come, that you've designed it for good. Strengthen our faith so that we might honor you even as Christ, your Son, honored you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.